Hello and welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm Boris Felgendreyer, founder of the Logistics Tribe, and our guest today is Ken Adamo, Chief of Analytics at DAT. DAT operates the largest truckload freight marketplace in North America. Ken is responsible for DAT IQ, DAT's data science team and its pricing database for shippers, 3PLs, trucking operators, and freight brokers. Ken is one of the leading experts in data analytics in the logistics industry, so we had to pair him up with our host, Jonah McIntyre. This turned out to be a wide-ranging conversation about the present and future of freight data and analytics, and also a view into Ken's career in the industry. Enjoy. Ken, thanks for coming on the show. We've been really uh, fortunate to get you on. Really excited for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So we're going to talk about what you've been building at DT Analytics. Super exciting stuff. I'd like to get a running start at that to know a little bit about your background. So how'd you get into, so you originally weren't in logistics when you were sort of beginning of your career. Where'd you start? How'd you make that transition? And where were you prior to your time at DT? Yeah, so I graduated right at the end of the, or kind of tail end of the Great Recession uh, with a finance degree. Not a great time to be graduating with that. Um, I had yeah. dreams of going into financial engineering, uh, which again, that sort of disappeared. And they, I think for posterity, shut down a lot of those facilities at most of the major universities and yeah. in in, um, in response to some of the things that happened. But so I started into regulated energy, which is, uh, for those not familiar, it's an analyst playground. There's it, there's so much to explore and, you know, modeling an electric arc furnace versus a blast furnace and how that energy consumption uh, differed. And, and essentially, you're, you're, I've, I've gravitated towards industries where pennies matter. Uh, mm-hmm. So getting it right, forecasting those loads, offering the most market competitive price, um, to deploy that generation uh, to grow the retail business, as states and in, in, in EDCs were deregulating across from Jersey all the way out to Illinois. So that's where I started. Mm-hmm. Um, like most things in deregulated energy, <laughs> there's usually a lot of bumps in the road, a la Enron and some of the stuff that happened with yeah. ERCOT down in Texas. So I, I jumped into transportation after about four years of doing that at FedEx, and I thought it would be boring, like trucks. Like, you know, you pick up and you deliver. You're coming from these extremely complex analytical problems. And I just fell in love with it. Um, there's a, a mixed rationality problem with logistics where you have the hardcore things need to pick up and deliver in a certain time window. And then you have drivers needing to accept dispatches and the volatility of shipper perceptions. And I've just been over the over a decade in the industry now, um, spent seven, about seven years with FedEx and I'm over three years now at DAT. So I absolutely love this industry. I'll be I'll consider myself very grateful if I get to retire in this industry. <laughs> Well, your time at FedEx is interesting. My view of FedEx is that the ability to move vertically was is going to be naturally rate limited by the growth of the company and the size of the company. There's going to be a lot of people trying to move at the same time, and if the company itself isn't growing, you know, massive amounts, then it's hard for positions to open. But you you made several moves at your time there and your your years there. So how did that come about? Was that lucky breaks? Was that you got identified as key early talent? Was it you were working on the right uh, high growth area? I think it was a mixture. I'll give most of the credit. I had a phenomenal CEO of our operating company. She was the first female CEO of a FedEx operating company, a woman by the name of Virginia Atticott. Tremendous mentor to me, uh, luminary in the space. Um, you know, She's retired now and doing board work. And, um, I'm mm-hmm. sure staying very, very busy, but yeah, she was just tremendous opportunities. I would be working on the pricing desk, um, pricing large enterprise deals, and she'd swing by and say, I want you to go to Mexico 
um, and understand why we're getting packages hung up in customs for our international priority air freight products. So I'd book a week or two in Mexico, a couple trips, and understand that through a quality-driven management approach. Um, so she had, uh, you know, I owe a lot of credit there. You know, she put me into a position to succeed. A lot of, I mean, in FedEx, you got to work. I mean, there's no two ways around it. Very few people that I've ever run across at FedEx got to the position they were in without really busting their tail. Um, yeah. And it's an interesting time for them, right? You're seeing a lot of those low badge numbers, right? So Fred Smith still has badge number one. When he logs into his computer, he puts one and then his password, um, or at least he did. And so you're seeing a lot of those low badge numbers start to retire. Um, and, you know, Fred slowly walk away from his responsibilities with Raj and those taking over. But um, it's a tremendous company. And if I had to give one reason why I left, uh, it would just be what you kind of outlined. I wanted to sort of have a little bit more control over my growth. Um, and have a little bit more creative freedom over the analytical problems we were solving. So then you get to this moment where you're, I presume, recruited away to DAT. Was this a, yeah, this was a pull. Yeah. And, you know, at that time, I, I'm guessing the pitch was about, we have all this data, but we're not monetizing it as we should. We've had a bit of a wake-up call from freight waves of, hey, there's a big demand for the monetization uh, who, who, who made the pitch to you? Was this sort of Claude or, or someone else? And, and how was it, how did, were you in an instant? Yes. Or were you, did it take some time for you to figure out if you wanted to make that move? That's a great question. So I spoke one of the kind of defining moments of, of my career personally, it got me out of my kind of shell. I mean, analysts like to sit at their desk and solve problems, whether you're doing number right. crunching or you're analyzing a story problem, right? It doesn't all have to be number driven. They invited me to speak, I think it was 2017, at one of their user conferences about how I was using their data to solve things like um, predictively uh, determining when we might see a safety failure or a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a problem in recruiting. And so I did that, and it really got me out of my shell and kind of got me to understand the power of engaging with the industry in, 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 as a leader that you use that tool every day, whether you realize it or not, right? You're out in front of your team as the team, you know, your team, your department, your division, Every day. So I did that. Um, and then I, they asked me back two years later, and it was in Austin, Texas. And sort of they took, they, they sort of ambushed me, I guess, in hindsight. I went to dinner, and the CFO, the CMO, uh, CEO, and the head of sales were all there. And said, hey, why don't you just come work for us? <laughs> I'm like looking for the door. I'm like, it was like a Joe Pesci in Goodfellas moment. I'm like, could I be worried? <laughs> but yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty easy yes, to be honest. I mean, I had. They removed the barrier of moving. I'm pretty entrenched from family roots and just I love the Midwest. So I was never going to move mm-hmm. to Oregon or Denver. Yeah. Uh, once yeah. they removed that barrier and, and sort of laid out what the job would be, it was a pretty simple yes. The, the hardest yeah. part was walking away. I had built, I had worked on a cross-functional team to build decision science at FedEx. I had a team of, I think, 12 or 14 when I left. I had hired all but one or two of them. So it was really hard mm-hmm. to walk away from the team and the people. But Virginia was retiring at that time. And while I had a great relationship with Ramona, the incoming CEO, it was just a great time to have a new opportunity. And when you when you said yes, I'm, I'm trying to picture this, 2019, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So you say, you say yes. What was, the, what was the climate like for analytics at that time? I mean, I, I, I have some, some kind of mental picture of it. I want to make sure I got it right. Freight waves already existed. That- yeah, we were partners. We partnered yeah. on the Freight Futures yeah. uh, project. Got it. Um, okay. Was there anybody else on the radar? I, I mean, tr- truckstop.com would have been on the radar of DET, but on the analytics level, was there was there anyone else who was a big name and, and kind of part of that, that field that would have been considered? 
Yeah, so Chainalytics owned the FMIC product, which we subsequently purchased uh, right, right as COVID was spinning up. So that would have been the big three, right? Great Waves really wasn't in the rating space when I came here. They were doing more of like the uh, – and they're doing a very good job. I, I give them a lot of credit. They were doing a, a really good job. I, I was a customer of that sort of like boardroom analytics, I would call it, um, mm-hmm. tying things maybe that were a bit orthogonal to the direct movement of freight uh, back, uh-huh. to the, back to the freight market. Um, and some pretty good volumetric indices along the lines of CAS. So that was mm-hmm. the place. So, you know, they weren't the, the real ratings players were DAT, uh, FMIC, more on the shipper side, and then a pretty distant. And I don't mean this in any way as a dig, but just a pretty distant third being truck stop. Um, yeah. But uh, that's sort of the climate I entered into. You know, a ten-year-old product, market leader, mm-hmm. but monetizing maybe five percent. Yeah. Yeah, five percent yeah. of the data that the and, and I knew that right, having worked very closely yeah. with the team for seven, I knew that what they they were like Scrooge McDuck sitting on this pile of data. Um, yeah, so you're saying yes to come into a product that already has some that there's already a legacy product there. How big was the team that you were? Did you have any idea of like how, was, uh, taking over legacy products myself? There's always a headache with legacy products. Was that sort of front of mind for you? Or did you think, well, I'll deal with that later? And really, it's about the future opportunity. I had a front row seat to the struggles they were having, frankly. They were trying to – they, now now, now we, uh, yeah. were trying to get their predictive rating product off the ground. And I was, of course, always interested. So I was one of the beta or alpha testers. And I just was like, you know, this isn't a great way to develop products. And I, so I, I knew that was going to be a, an opportunity and a challenge. And the team was pretty small. I mean – there wasn't much genuine product development resource put on what we call our IQ side of the business at the time. There was like one product line manager and then they would scrap together just extra engineering resources when they came up to make enhancements. A and lot with has the, with the, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and at that time, was it already clear that there would be a acquisition strategy? I mean, eventually the ch- Chainalytics, obviously, obviously 2020, the, the, the acquisition there, but was that a... When when you were at that dinner where you got ambushed, was that known at the time, or was that that no. just opportunistic later? Okay, that's really our strategy around M and A, right? I don't know that we are out there participating in a ton of deals that aren't on market yet, right? I'm sure that's happening. I don't get ultra involved unless it's in my side of the house. Um, but at the time, certainly we were all excited. Mm. We knew of. And it's like such talent, right? You got Chris, Dr. Chris Kaplis and Enom and, and just the folks that we brought over are all um, – it's what DA team was missing when I joined. That was one of my like side hustles was trying to get more industry people into DAT at all levels of the organization because I don't think – I don't think having domain expertise or knowledge is a requirement to being successful. Mm-hmm. But certainly having that accent and being able to lean on people besides just me. Um yeah. I knew was going to be critical. So, you know, bringing more industry folks. Uh, and then you got Chris with the academic approach and um, what he gets the visibility on up at MIT. It, it was, uh, it made a lot of sense. Plus, when you're thinking about these things, you also don't want them to get into the hands of a, of a competitor, right? Uh, right. You've been a part right, of right, MA. Right. You've been a part of a bunch of MA right. where you're like, that is your, what's your offensive posture? What's your defensive posture? All that kind of stuff comes into play. Yeah, I think Chain Lakes was interesting from from outside perspective. Chain Lakes is interesting because not only did it bring the talent in terms of understanding industry, understanding analytics, it it brought a customer base and it brought a, a network. Uh, it it brought a group of people who are just highly networked. So at the senior level of Chain Analytics, they're a highly networked group of people that can 
sort of further cross-sell an IQ product if they're if they're engaged to do so. Yeah. So post-COVID last year, we had our first, they used to do a very similar thing, like a customer summit every year. And we got to do mm-hmm. our first one. And we actually mixed uh, the brokers with the shippers and carriers. So they had their own day. The shippers had their own day. And you're sitting in a room with like the people, right? You know, yeah. I won't mention any yeah. names, but like a big appliance manufacturer. And like, I'm talking to them yeah. and they're like, they're setting the global strategy, you know, coming into black. It was in October. So like they were already talking about finalizing their Black Friday and Christmas strategy for appliances. So it was like, wow, that was really. And then we put Terry Bradshaw on the last day. So most people stuck around. <laughs> um, so it was it was really cool to see people interacting because um, a lot of times you go to these yeah. conferences. Right. And like the five or six shippers that are there are like mother geese and all of the vendors and brokers and everyone's yeah. following them around. So it was actually cool to not see that dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that at that scale, you start to get, I don't know, market movement just based on the people in the room. The people in the room, if they're aligned on a on a topic, can can make action on it. Yeah, I think shippers are better at that, right? So we're, I'd love to see more of that in the intermediary space, like around issues like double brokering um, or some of the fraud that you right. see in the spot market. I, I would, and I get it's a more fragmented market. There's no doubt about it. Um, there's only one Coke or one Anheuser-Busch in the broker space, and that's C.H. Robinson, largely. Um, so, yeah, I think the TIA does a good job, but I think as an Mm -hmm. industry coalition, we could do a lot more around that issue. Yeah. On that double brokering issue, it's, it's, it's funny because simply the rules of engagement, um, kind of having worked both in the the U S and other regions, the rules of engagement differences leads to sort of different incentive structures. And, uh, in places like, uh, like Europe, you have no double brokering limitation. So essentially anybody can subcontract any number of times. And the impact from that's pretty high. It's funny that in the U.S. context where it's supposed to be illegal happens in practice a bit, but it's just long tail stuff. It still is, is seen as a frustration. Anyway. OK, so you come in, uh, you guys, you guys do your acquisition at that at that time, because you, you kept the product names consistent, but the products you've added new products as well in the IQ sort of suite. And did you sort of initiate a uh, a kind of a complete re- relaunch or was it more opportunistic as you saw we can get this out the door now let's do it let's do the next one as soon as we can did you have yeah. a kind of holistic vision or, or or are you going through this opportunistically i think it's both um so we have sort of a transition plan that we've been pretty public about where we want to get everyone mm-hmm. into iq at some point right iq being just the right. container for all of these but uh we need to make sure there's sixteen thousand people that are using great view every single day that deeply rely on it that's it's the humbling part about I love to take newbies at DAT on sales calls or just customer mm-hmm. visits because mm-hmm. you can't walk around a broker's floor and not see one of our apps up on right. one of their monitors. Brokers are notorious to a point of almost being a meme for having multiple monitors. And there's almost always right. rate view or you know, power and now DAT one up on one of their screens. Uh, mm-hmm. And then their TMS will be up there and then usually their tracking software and their email. So um, we wanted to, we're, we're trying to be very, very aware that I don't want to move their cheese and leave them in the lurch. Right for the business mm-hmm. that they need to execute on. Um, so it's been both. We have a lot of organic development, so new, like uh, what I would call like IQ native features, so like market conditions right. index. Um, but then we have kind of things that we've knowingly entered into some tech tech where we built our forecasting product as an extension on our legacy rate view product. And now both of those need to make the journey, and they are making the journey mm-hmm. into IQ. So um, do I think the worst thing you can do is be surprised or like unknowingly creating tech debt, which we all do. I mean, we all are guilty of it. 
And we're just trying to be as deliberate as possible in, in cashing in some chips <laughs> and maybe mm-hmm, moving mm-hmm. to that side of the table, but then also making sure that we still have a healthy pipeline of organic um, development. The FMIC stuff was brilliantly put together, but it, on very, very antiquated and almost like uh, just hard scrabble technology, right? Just like things that not like I would probably try to put together <laughs> um, yeah, as yeah. a non-engineer yeah. and just yeah. moving that all into modern seamless workflow um, error handling data data garbage in garbage out right so mm-hmm. you know adding that data cleaning that data um, anomaly detection has been huge right if a, if a large shipper dumps us a month's worth of data and it's got fuel included when it never did before that can throw off everything right so we just need to be sure that we're following those and so on the monetization side so not on the inbound side but on the monetization side at some point you started making your data available through snowflake as well yes right so what, what what was that like? Uh, I the decision to go through Snowflake. I imagine that's that's just cuts probably half of the commercialization steps um, in the timeline out for you. Uh, did you find a lot of uptick in that? I mean, the thing I find interesting about that is not very many people in our industry would have been going to Snowflake at that moment. So it's sort of a, you're an early adopter as a data source into Snowflake for our industry. Yeah, we so were how, the first. How did you find that whole process? Yeah, we were yeah, literally yeah. the first yeah. in the marketplace for yeah. the free data. So yeah. we, our most common product, our most commonly used product is something called Treadlines. People have been scraping academics, industry people who are like don't have a budget have been scraping. I think we get like 45,000, 50,000 people a month coming to the Treadlines page and pulling data down from it. Right. And so we right. thought like, why not make it easier for someone who can write a select all select star query in Snowflake? It's been awesome. I have a whole team now. My, you know, we had basically two or three people working on Snowflake because we delivered that data previously. Like that's how mm-hmm. I would have consumed it as a customer. Mm-hmm. And now that team's grown. Uh, it'll probably be three x by the end of this year, just because the demand. I mean, li- literally, as we're talking, I'm getting slacks about it. Like, so, like, customers really, really are interested in this format. Snowflake has done a good job of making even um, sort of like platform agnostic access into their platform easier, mm-hmm. which I think is mm-hmm. brilliant, right? I mean, now you can just kind of write th- through the Snowpipe and other tools that they have. You can API call into it. Mm-hmm. Um, the data sharing back and forth has been tremendous. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really been a game changer. And like I said, it's not just the paid data. It's People love the yeah. easy access to free data. Um, mm-hmm. and, and Snowflake, to their credit, does a really good job. They, they launch these like these big splashes into verticals. So we're going to be partnering with them on another one. I, I can't talk too much about it. But you know they'll splash into a vertical with a bunch of people on the marketplace and do mm-hmm. these roadshows. And it's, it's mutually very beneficial because it gets us exposure to people that maybe didn't know that we existed before. That's that's super interesting. It's I, I'm interesting to hear how you how you deal with the fact that our industry has at the same time you have people who do want to go to Snowflake and are comfortable writing direct API queries, all the way to the other end of uh, customers that are only capable of handling SFTP, you know, flat file exchanges on a on a monthly basis or something. So. Do, do you have to do you have to segment your team? Because my experience is that the engineering, the technology, sort of maintenance and build, it's very difficult to maintain both knowledge but also motivation across all of those possibilities. So do do you have to segment your team based on the the kind of the maturity or the 
I know the generation of the technology used oh, for the yeah. data exchange. And, yeah, yeah, we're trying to okay. nudge people from FTP to SFTP. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. When yeah. I tell candidates I'm trying to recruit them here, I said the hardest because a good question people ask is what's the hardest part of your job? And I said I'm yeah, I need to build products for a truck driver paying us fifty bucks a month for our most basic service, all the way up to the largest shippers in North America consuming millions and millions of rows of data through automatic data transfer. Mm-hmm. I think it's you know in the industry though, I mean. They've been saying EDI was going to die for 30 years. Yeah. So there's this people love where I don't think it's like a – I don't think it's age-related. I don't think it's internal systems related. There's just a comfort blanket of getting your SFTP file every Monday and, you know, Jim over in – Jim the DBA knows how to load it up into Oracle and then it's there for me ready to use. Um, Yeah. But I think we've added some sales engineering horsepower. And that's really helped because when you sit like hand over mouse with folks and you're like, look, if you did it this way, you'd get more data. It would be there as soon as you need it. And if you forget your password to the SFTP folder, you don't have to call IT. And they're like, huh, okay, right. well, let me try it. Um, and, so and, and, and so you're, you're, you're sort of nudging them further down the yeah. maturity. Yeah, the maturity path. That's interesting. Okay, so, so you made those moves. You've grown a team. Uh, what, what was just out of curiosity? What was the like start and start and current team? I, it must have been huge based on what we can see coming out of DTIQ. I think when I started here, it was a team of seven, including myself, and I think we're sitting at sixty something today. Yeah, which amazing. for a company our size, right? I, I, yeah, I, I'm yeah, very, yeah. yeah, I'm grateful. You know, we have stateside engineering and product and everything. I think we're only like five hundred folks, so. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm That's very huge. fortunate yeah. to have the investment. And we're going to add probably another 40% data science. We're going to increase the data science team by another 40% this year, continuing yeah. investing in professional services and sales engineering. Um, our Denver and presence is, uh, you know, we have we have almost all of our IQ engineering is in Denver. Mm-hmm. Um, so. And do you end up, do you end up saying the majority of your effort there in sort of, is it is it data pipeline cleansing? Is it model building? Is it front end? sort of GUI presentation layer? Is it, uh, de- you know, data ops, DevOps, sort of maintaining? I mean, we're, I, actually, I'm not even asking the detailed question. I'm just asking when you come in, what did, did, did your attention have to shift to one particular area? Because that was, that's your, that's the thing that, that was the unlock. It's I, maybe another way to say it is before you joined, why hadn't what what was the what was the lock that was preventing DT from realizing this uh, the potential of this data? Because as you said, it was it's uh, Uncle uh, Uncle Scrooge, Scrooge on a pile of data. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think there's a blessing and a curse. Again, I, I, there's a lot of things I'm thankful for at DT. Not having private equity or venture capital backing is a huge mm-hmm. piece of it. It's a blessing. 90% of the time, and there's a little bit of it that it's a curse, right? Because we have to make money on the things that we build. By, like on the yeah. average, we can have stinkers, yeah. right? We can, we, can, we can have ideas that don't pan out, but, you know, we can't go invest 30 million bucks in an idea that, you know, ends up revenue uh, dilutive yeah. once yeah. it launches. So I think part of it was building trust. And like, look, I wouldn't have invested. The thesis wasn't made when I joined to invest in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I came, it was already in flight. The executive team was in place. I mean, um, our, our, our CEO, they, they, there was a big investment in people who have done this before that came in right around. It was a big changing of the guard at the senior level. Yeah. And 
one of the first things I jumped on when I got here was building the thesis to invest in both the digital freight mat- digitization of freight matching, which was not my core area, um, mm-hmm. and then investing in data and analytics. So we, I mean, I would argue that DAT didn't get its mandate to go build world-class next-gen data and analytics until the spring, you know, the first spring I spent at DAT. Um, yeah. And, you know, the area that I focused on right out of the gate was, you know, our data science team wasn't production focused. It was a lot of research, um, research we still use today. So it's not that it wasn't worthwhile, but like exploratory in nature or something. Yeah. And now it's kind of a more disciplined production. So our data science team is split in two. We have a production or a research side and a machine learning engineering side. So instead of throwing research over the wall for engineering to go figure out, you know, our Mm -hmm. researchers hand it over to the machine learning engineers. They build production hardened endpoints that our Mm -hmm. product development engineers can go hit across the organization, right? So they might want to stitch, you might have a rating algorithm that they stitch the geo service and the billing and the single sign-on APIs into and then push it into production as opposed to like, what's a Bayesian algorithm? You know what I mean? Like they don't care anymore. They just know they pass it origin, destination, equipment type, weight, pieces, dims and weight, and it gives them a price. That's all they care about. And the sub-second latency and um, you know, it's a highly available service that's hosted in uh, an EC2 instance. That's all I really need to know. Mm-hmm. And w- when you think now, so now I'm going to kind of transit. Th- th- thanks for the background. This gives us a nice running start at the, yeah. the rest of the conversation. So, so looking now today, if you sort of inca- could summarize uh, for for the listeners, w- you know, what is the DAT IQ suite? What is it capable of now? What's it focused on? So the big thing that I, so once I got through some of the framing we had to put in place, probably the first year, um, I really wanted to focus on what problems are we're helping our customers solve. It's not how we thought before. We thought about rate view and making rate view awesome and largely like any business does, charging more for rate view. That's what every business seeks to do, right? Charge more for their products. Mm-hmm. Um I said, so we, we spent a lot of time thinking about what do our customers do? And the things that we settled on, I don't pretend that they're perfect or that they might not expand or change, but they're largely looking to benchmark, forecast, analyze, and transact. And RateView falls into that transactional bucket. I have a shipment I need to move. I'm a carrier sales rep or I'm an enterprise sales rep or I'm whatever the brokerage calls them. I've got a load from Chicago to Atlanta that I need to move. And I need to know how much I'm going to charge for it and I need to know how much I'm going to cover it for. Mm-hmm. Um, FMIC obviously brought in benchmarking and it's not just shippers that need to benchmark brokers benchmark on both sides. How much am I selling for compared to my peers? How much am I buying for forecasting was new to us. We launched our forecasting product in April of 20. It got off to a very slow start in my opinion, because we weren't building it with customer focus in mind. What was the problem? The customer just didn't want a future state rate. They needed help responding to RFPs. That's why you need a forecasted rate, right? As a broker, I'm being asked to sell on a fixed rate that I'm going to buy on a variable rate. That's a very risky proposition. And my brokers have always struggled with bids. Shippers want to know, should are they going to spend more or less over the next bid cycle? Um, and then analyzes our market conditions products, our load to truck ratio, our uh, predictive carrier recommendations. So that's really found resonation with the market. Mm-hmm. And like any product strategy, we're not out there openly marketing it that way, right, as much. But that's right. sort of the, the way we're building uh, product. And look, we made some changes to how the Raycast product was uh, designed and, and added some workflow creature comforts, and it takes off, right? It's growing at like 300% adoption per year um, over That's the last great. two years. So 
I think that's a testament to building products and allowing customers to access them in a way that makes sense. They're not going to change their workflow organically. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So you take the you take the point of view on the product management that it's uh, you essentially need to identify what their what the pain is they're experiencing today in their in their in these tasks and develop a solution to that. So you're not attempting to change their behavior, you're attempting to like alleviate a pain that they have in the moment right now with these products. Yeah, and I'd love to eventually get to a point. I think that's like the table stakes point you get to. And then you get to a point where it's like, well, um, again, not peeking too far behind the curtain of what we're thinking about, but once I have them doing what they already do more effectively, I can start mm-hmm. to build product in a way that does change their behavior. So let me give you an example. One problem that brokers have is they still don't. They some rating algorithms just fall short in spurt, in disparate, like these weird lanes, right? So like mm-hmm. North Platte to Boise, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of traffic on there. But you might have a shipper that you've never really worked with, so you might want to pulse your carrier network. Can we get them to change their behavior in a positive way where we can allow them to pulse our network of 150,000 carriers um, and help them understand what it might cost to move freight on a lane? Right? We all do this in the industry, but we do it with email, phone calls, and all this kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are like I, I we aren't I, I don't believe anyway we're in a point where we're um, sophisticated enough to start really proactively changing behavior. It's going to be like little mm-hmm. nibbles, right? Um, I wish yeah, we reminds- had kind of the market power of Steve Jobs with the iPad, right? I mean that was like to me like the hallmark of something no one knew they needed, and now it's the most prevalent uh, tablet device. Yeah, yeah. There's this continuum in my experience with product leadership. There's this continuum between uh, seeing product leadership as a s- kind of a sense and respond function, where your job is to uh, is to either through surveys, through customer interviews, discovery processes, kind of figure out what the customer is saying they need or needs, problem they face, and then fix it. And then you have this other one that's more anchored in. You know, vision or taste in in industries like uh, film or or art, you would call it music. You would call it taste in in industries like ours. You'd call it vision. You know, Steve Jobs, visionary, where you know what they want in a future state that they can't possibly envision, and so you bring it sort of full form into life and give it to them, and it's amazing. But of course, when it misses, it really misses. <laughs> and so you've got these two extremes, and it sounds like your your style of product leadership really heads towards the, at least right now, is you want to sense what the large customer base of DAT needs and respond to that. Uh, let me let me ask a question. Oh, go ahead, sorry. I was gonna, like, the one thing that I hear from all product managers I bring in from out of industry is they're mm-hmm. just, sh- especially like the user researchers and our UX people, they are shocked at how forthcoming freight people are. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're used to coming to indus- from industries, especially from um, some of the tech startup folks. People are very mm-hmm. guarded in, in, mm-hmm. in indicating what their preferences are or the pain points they have. Mm-hmm. Um, you sit down with a broker and it's like, look, come to my desk. <laughs> see these post-it yeah. notes? Um, yeah. See this? See this? See these index cards? These are the carriers I call when the crap hits the fan. Uh, these yeah. people over here are who I call when I need to clear customs coming across the Canadian border. Um, help. Where do you want to help? Where do, where do we start? Because it's, yeah. yeah. it's such a beautifully transparent industry and the people are so down to earth and it's still so manual. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. 
that actually leads into this question I was going to ask. Well, we'll get there in a second of the future, right? You see the future of the industry. Maybe we stay with the present for just a second. So one question that is, I've seen, you've made acquisitions with Chainalytics. Chainalytics sort of famously was getting its data from its um, from its customer base. So it wasn't, it didn't have some proprietary data set that was a the the, exa- the data exhaust from a primary process the way that DAT does. DAT's sort of got a data set from its load boards, which is a right. It's it's the exhaust coming off of the load boards. Plus, you have data sets which are coming from volunteered, so shippers, brokers, as part of a benchmarking exercise, and you had the Chainalytics data coming in. At this time, if you sort of look at the the core of your 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 data acquisition, you know how how dependent do you feel like it is on DAT? I mean, I, I, one of the things I think that's interesting when I watch DAT from the outside, DAT IQ from the outside, is that whereas prior to you joining, I would have said. The analytics at DT is simply the sort of the offshoot of its of its operating business, and I, you know, someone asked me that today. I'd say, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I have the feeling that it's getting closer and closer to the load board could kind of shut down, and it would still be viable as an analytics business in and of itself. Yeah, so I, I certainly wouldn't want that to happen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ken's like knocking on wood over here. Yeah, yeah. please, I don't want that to happen. No, it's um. I think that's that's pretty spot on. I mean, we're at a point now where we're not using any kind of, I like the way you framed it. I ought to use that internally. Any load board, like all of our data that gets into our ratings products is directly contributed and validated from customers at this point. Right. Uh, so we get right, $150 right. billion dollars of paid freight transactions. I think it's like 60 something million loads a year from 1,300 direct contributors. So everything comes from a direct relationship. I think that's a, a huge differentiator in the industry because when you use load board rates, we actually have a lot of customers that are very interested in that, right? The load board posted mm-hmm. rate versus the actual moved rate because it's a very indicative of a market condition, right? Sure, yeah. Um, whether you're negotiating up to a rate or negotiating down from a rate is very like, it's an indicative. So, yeah, it, it's it's both, right? So I think where where the only way the only way I would really push against what you suggested is um, there's there's very different operating models with some of our customers. Some of our customers only do business on the load board. So we need to make sure that we're piping analytics into we'd be missing out on a huge your like average truck driver, yeah, yeah, who wants yeah. to see rates yeah. isn't yeah. going to log in. They don't have a computer, right? And they're not right. going to log yeah. in to rate view to go check on rates. They need to have it where they right. are. Yeah. So I think I'm very interested in populating up into our web platform our um, freight matching platform data insights. I also think there's a ton. So we have our new DAT1 app has location tracking enabled on like 70 or 80 something percent. I think it's like 88% of users. So we got pretty much all the time data visibility, data visibility for 2 million trucks in our network. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. cool, right? So we start playing with this. When Hurricane Ian came through Florida, we started, we, we did some, an interesting exercise for one of the trade publications where we showed like this dispersion of traffic away when the hurricane came through, but also how rapidly it came back. And we were tracking something like 80,000 trucks just in Hurricane Ian's path in our network. So like that, that, those are data points I want to feed. It's going to become less dependent on rates and I think more on market activity as we go into the future because that's, that's the golden goose, right? If you could figure mm-hmm. out in real time where the capacity was, if you had a macro lens and you could shine it on Chicago or Rockford, Illinois, and find out where all f- empty for hire trucks were, that would be it. That would be Skookum. I mean, you'd have 
you'd have the world beater um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in terms of freight analytics. So we'll never really get there because we don't have it's such a uh, such a fragmented market. But I think pumping data and, and and analytic insights off of activity from the load board and then pumping rate insights back into it are the circular relationship I see us having in the future. Less Got rates it. dependent. And this kind of then leads into the future. So uh, on one hand, you know, you're you're creating this what looks like pretty dominant, pretty pretty. You know, you guys aren't a duopoly. You're not in some contested territory. You're pretty dominant in North America. Um, I'm curious to see how you see that playing out in the future. There are a couple things that I've I've watched uh, with DET IQ that uh, make me really interested in this question. So one is the decision to shut down Chainalytics in Europe. Um, Now, my impression from that was that maybe your 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 old read was one is better to focus on a huge market that you have sort of dominance in than to try to eke it out in a, in a second market where you don't. The maybe it relates to your ability to embed the analytics in decision making processes like you you described a second ago. So it's not just the analytics; it's the analytics to the broker in the in the place where they want to make that decision. But then the third that came to mind was this this kind of maybe you see the future as there really will be a a, um, a shakeout phase and there'll eventually be sort of one dominant data provider in in the market and you want all your all your bets to be on that. So maybe you could just speak to that for a moment. So I mean, I think with Europe, I, where I came down on that was well, I don't know if this is a flaw or a character trait or whatever you want to call it. But I don't like doing anything not well, like. Yeah, it bothers yeah. me. I like. I, I'd rather focus on where we do, where we're good, and right. it pained me in Europe when we when we acquired Chainalytics. We lost our European presence. Uh, the folks that we had over there, we had three or four folks over there. Um, you know, they pursued other opportunities, and just not having a real presence over there made it really difficult to recruit. Um, yeah, and you know, honestly, it's the, we were hearing from customers all too often that we weren't doing. Like they saw the North American product. Mm-hmm, like, right. I don't think we had a single yeah. customer that was exclusive to Europe, right? So they yeah. saw the North American product. And it's not just the data product. It's the roundtables we do. It's the thought leadership. Yeah. And the customers are candid, right? They're like, well, we don't think you're providing the value that you provide here. Like we clear yeah. our calendars to come to your roundtables that Chris Kaplis moderates and hear from all the other shippers. This yeah. European one, you're bumbling through it. It seems like you're reading to us the – Boston, you know, like the Boston Globe or the Wall Street Journal articles that are talking about Europe, even even they don't aren't plugged in. You're not even like citing European sources. Yeah. And so it was a yeah. decision around like, look, we either need to invest probably at a level above what Kane was investing yeah, or focus on where we're good. It doesn't close the door on Europe. But at the time, like looking across the table, my peers in sales and marketing were kind of not bought in on the fact that we could invest and reap what the similar investment in North America would generate. Uh, almost um, certainly not. I mean, the yeah. market in the U.S. is larger. Your starting position is stronger. Yeah. Probably the people you're looking across the table at were Americans. You yourself are American. And, you know, the track record on this is not good for American companies in our space trying to make headway into into Europe. I mean, you and I can take a side bet on whether C.H. Robinson keeps its uh, – it's what second or third now subsidiary that it's tried to launch in Europe, uh, or if that gets spun out to, uh, to to free up cash. But I have a lot of scars as, too, right? I was at FedEx with the TNT 
acquisition. Uh, exactly. Wa- yeah. Watching people yeah. when they got the ransomware that happened through the Ukrainian customs clearance, but you know, engineering directors get parachuted in there for six week stints and the drag, yeah. right? It's like the the term that leadership would use is TNT is going to blot out the sun for a while. Yeah. Um, and again, yeah. completely different scale. I don't want to pretend that our decision, our, like our little crackerjack decision around um, FMIC Europe was even remotely close to TNT, but. I think it's similar peril. I mean, you, it's it's trepidatious, right? I, I yeah. would never want, and we we're honest with our customers, right? I mean, a lot of the conversations were, I don't want your North American business to suffer. The product we're giving you, North American business, to suffer because we're not focused. I want to be focused on you and your North American business. And and now, if you if we turn to the U.S., so I I hear people describe kind of two visions for these sort of data products in the future. I think it's possible these actually occur in sequence, but but leave that aside. One is kind of the winners get bigger, that this is a eventually a winner-take-all place, a bit like, with it, with due respect to them, a bit like Truckstop.com is sort of no longer really at, in the running with DAT on this topic. Maybe they invest and they get back there, I don't know, but right now they're not. And it's hard to imagine that it doesn't sort of concentrate eventually into one or two sort of main players. And then another vision that I hear people say is like, well, okay, all of this data, for example, you get data given to you. Uh, other providers in our space, people like Zanetta in the ocean space, have data given to them. And that's not a lot of barrier. You know, if, if someone's giving you data, they can give it to somebody else like that by the, by its nature. And so, and since a lot of these data sources have at least two parties to them, a buyer and a seller, that's two parties who can give the data to somebody. And, and this, these dynamics all together would make it so that... Uh, it would be very hard to really corner the the data source and analytics market, and therefore it's going to commoditize. How, how do you see things shaking out? Maybe a, a ten year horizon between now and say ten years out. I mean, I think on the on the pure rating space, there's a benefit to having the history, right? Our market. I think if you were to snap your fingers and, and everyone who contributes to us starts contributing to you today with no back or limited historical backfill. Yeah. I think you'd probably be pretty good at predicting what the prices are going to be generally today, tomorrow, or next week. I mean, that's not a uber difficult problem. I think the, our, our industry operates on this globally. It operates on this big cyclic, right? This big yeah, yeah. 18 to 24 month cycle. And does you need a lot of, you need to, it's like the traveler's insurance is it? you know, we, 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 we know it all because we've seen it all i'm butchering it but it's mm-hmm. something like that like they've seen a lot so they know a lot like we've seen a lot of, like we've, we've got 12 years of this largely yeah. core nexus of data it's grown obviously but we've got like the core going back 10 mm-hmm. to 12 years so we've seen a lot and history doesn't repeat but it rhymes and all the cliches but at the end of the day um we can pull out of the historical register what we think 23 is going to look like it's going to be more like 19 or more like 15 and mm-hmm. the added benefit, a lot of us were in the industry at that time, so we can we can kind of triangulate our our, our working thesis on that. And I think that's just rate analytics, though. I mean, there's a ton of room in our space. Uh, trucking in North America deregulated within two years of the airline industry, 78 and 80. And the airline industry is just a world ahead. Even like if you think like crew scheduling, um, location. I mean, people are still out there tracking trailer pools with Excel files. I wouldn't be surprised right, if right. they're not using Lotus 123 at some of these LTL carriers, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think the 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 industry will expand analytics um, to the point where it's not just centered around rating and capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in our space, like I said, we fill a very our customers have. My goal is to make our customers have little need to look elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. You know, when this comes and, down to it, it's like I want to make sure that they're getting their needs met. They feel happy about the value they're getting for the price they're paying, and 
they trust that we are developing products that meet their need. Right? If we decided we wanted to go out and build an analytic product around uh, predictive trailer pooling, they might have a problem with that because I don't know what they would say. You know, mm-hmm. it is important to stay connected. We have cons- customer advisory boards and we're constantly talking to them about where should we be prioritizing because as fast as we built a market dominant position, it could go away. Yeah, it's interesting because just to play off this, the kind of last two questions I was going to ask you, one of them was, do you see any kind of paradigm shift Now that might be a change in the structure of the industry? For example, autonomous vehicles might lead to more concentration or it might be um, ubiquitous Internet of Things signals sort of changes the kind of the blackout areas of, of data that we have right now. We just don't know where some things are. We don't. It's very hard to get that data together. Are, do you see any paradigm shifts which are really on your radar for the future of your, your IQ area? I think the big thing that could happen in the very near term would be consolidation of telematics data, both yeah. around power units and trailers. It, it's so fragmented, um, and we're hearing that from our customers. I was shocked in our last cab event about how fragmented it truly is. And it's not even yeah. fragmented. It's fragmented within the method and mode as well as the provider, right? So you got ELD text tracking, you know, cell phone based GPS tracking. Um, and then you have the whole trailer component of it too. So I I think that's an area where data, uh, kind of like an underlying paradigm shift in the data creation Mm -hmm. could change how industry players sort of monetize it or need to deal with it. I think that's part of it. I think long-term, I think autonomous is really cool. I mean, I'd love to be the first load board to have an autonomous truck post on it, you know? Um, I think that would be a, just a, a, an awesome thing to aspire to. I think that'll probably ease in, though. I don't know that that's kind of on my five-year radar, kind of disrupting. Yeah, yeah. It might be interesting. It might disrupt like our internal Slack channels as people just sort of ooh and ah over it because I think mm-hmm. it will be cool. And then it's like big regulatory things have disrupted our industry. ELD mandate in 18 yeah. forever changed how things um, happen. So as we build more like national drug database clearinghouses and things like that, how are companies going to – be uh, pushed into reckoning with that because beyond safety, right? So driver fitness was largely the lens we viewed, should we hire this driver? But I think it's going to start to expand on things like um, their environmental footprint. Like are, mm-hmm. they, are, they, are they smart way certified? Are they uh, giving preference mm-hmm. in some of these dispatching algorithms to alternate fuel source mm-hmm. trucks? I think those are all things that I'm watching that are just super interesting in our industry and have the potential to be really breakout areas of data exploration. That's interesting. So my last question for you is, is there anybody, either company, individual, who you, you know, outside of outside of DT, outside of your company, your team, is there anybody who you really have your eye on as, wow, they're doing interesting work, you know, conceptually interesting work, or the product that they're putting out there is super interesting, business model is super interesting, anything like that? So I have a, uh, I'll give you a compound, compound answer to your question because I have all the respect and admiration in the world for Chris Pickett. So he was mm-hmm. at Coyote. He popularized the Coyote curve and now he's at Flock Freight. And I just think what they're doing is incredibly interesting, right? So they're doing essentially like fractional crowdsourced LTL, if you will. So like kind of like mm-hmm. quasi LTL, if you're familiar with what they're doing. I think it's a really fascinating business model um, trying to clear the hurdles of insurance and regulatory and the commingling of freight through data, technology, insights. I think what they're doing is really, really cool. Um, so that's kind of my industry answer to your question. Mm-hmm. 
industry adjacent, I think what Kodiak Robotics is doing, it's something I'm keeping an eye on. Uh, we actually have a connection with NDAT of someone that was over there, one of the co-founders, and I've had a couple conversations with them. I just think that's a really interesting concept because they seem to be born and bred in the large equipment category. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's someone I'm keeping an eye on. I'm checking in on Flock, you know, more frequently because it's more kind of pertinent to my information, but I sort of navel gaze at Kodiak and some of the other um, uh, autonomous providers at times. It's interesting. The, the, I, I watch, uh, I have a bit the same relationship with, with robotics. I have a, through a contact, I, I have a second degree connection to somebody who's doing autonomous um, local delivery vehicles. And they mentioned that one of the things they ended up doing in an iteration of the designs was to make the, these are, I'm sorry, I should say, these are small robotic, these are like uh, trolleys, essentially. They're, they're not, they're not big cars. They're not trucks or anything size. They're, they're kind of trolley size and they make little deliveries of groceries and stuff to, to your house in a, in oh, a constrained cool. neighborhood. Um, but they ended up making a, an iteration where they made them look cute because if they look, you know, stealthy and advanced or whatever uh, versus cute, well, if they get stuck in snow or otherwise kind of stuck somewhere, the cute ones get helped by pedestrians who can just sort of nudge them back onto their path or whatever. And it's little, it's little like those are the those are the things that the people are working on this area every once in a while I'll hear about it and go, yeah, like it's a cool area. It's a it's a place worthy of, of spending time, right? Yeah. That's that's doing product development right. I mean, if you really get yeah. down to the core of it, it's like that's because I do. I mean, I yeah. see those little things, not quite like a smaller version of what you're talking about, going around Columbus or Cleveland or Cincy yeah. or you know, in my areas, and I'm like no one's helping those things when they tip over. In fact, you know, people like rooting for them to get hit at the intersection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking pictures of them when they fall yeah. over and stuff. Yeah, dumping them in the river, you know. Yeah. Although the specialized form factor, I, I sort of, I, as an aside, I, I fall on the point of view of the form factor that people should be building the robots for is a, a human, essentially. It's everything in our physical world is designed for that form factor. If you have a yeah. humanoid robot, it can do... 90% of the equipment tasks that we have because 90% of the equipment tasks we have were built for human operators. But I am interested in seeing these like Einride and other other autonomous vehicles come out that are intentionally built around a different form factor. Okay, Kodak Robotics. Okay, thanks very much. I uh, can really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I found it insightful. I hope other people did. A uh, little sneak peek into DET, IQ, a great business that you built, so... Thanks very much. I appreciate it. It's been really fun. This is a lot different than what I normally do. So I've appreciated kind of to be a little bit more introspective. Yeah, you usually have your fast paced podcast sort of talk talk on the on the day, you know, the commentary of where's the market at on the day. And I wanted to take a little bit longer time to talk about you, your career, and what you're building at DTIQ. It's super interesting. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. All right. Thanks. Right, that was the Logistics Stripe Podcast episode with Ken Adamo from DAT Freight and Analytics. If you enjoyed today's show, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. I'm Boris Felgentreer. Until next time. 